Listen, I just want to say, I probably don't say this enough, a lot lot of times we jump right into the passage or whatever's going on, Um, but it is so encouraging to be your pastor. I want you to know that. Um, We're actually instructed in Scripture uh, to make it a blessing for for your leaders to lead you. It actually blesses you by being that blessing to your leaders, so it's kind of a cycle. Um, And not every pastor can stand in front of their congregation on most Sundays and say this with sincerity. Uh, but it really is. You're making it a joy to, to serve you by leading. And um, there are so many examples just in the last seven days that have gone on where the body of Christ is being the body of Christ. And what's interesting is when the church cruises along and there's, there's a relative level of status quo going on and life is just kind of good and life's just kind of happening or whatever, the church doesn't shine as much in those moments in, in some ways, does it? Um, there, there have been a lot of hurts and a lot of things that have gone on uh, in, our, in our congregation. And it's been so powerful to just see the email trains going on, the, the care that's been happening, um, the extension of family to family, and all of that. And what's been amazing, too, is it's, there, there is not an inner core here that only those people get cared for. Uh, there are some being um, sacrificially cared for that are brand new. So my encouragement to you is this. If you've been around for a long time and don't know many people in this room, um, come talk to me. I will, I will do my best. It's not rocket, it's not rocket science on the one hand to, to make this happen. Uh, I would love to help you plug in. At the same time, if you're brand new here, I don't think that you need to, you know, be here for eight months before you're in the club and you get to receive benefit or something, or that you can meet someone else's needs. Uh, it's just been an incredible week of me getting to observe the body of Christ, being the body of Christ. So it's an exciting thing. Keep it up. Um, I, love, I, I love you guys, and I don't say that enough probably, I, uh, but I want you to know that. I love being your pastor. I love um, that God has us in life together. So, um, yeah. How many of you in this room have been on an airplane? Let me see your hand if you have flown on an airplane before. Okay. Most everyone. Okay, put your hands down. Uh, being on an airplane uh, is really a faith-filled adventure, isn't it? I mean, there, it, it really starts, I mean, it starts with the ticket agency and sitting there, and there's an amazing amount of typing that used to go on. Now it's a lot of automated, but this woman would sit and type like this for, you know, 20 minutes while I'm trying to check onto a plane. I'm not sure what she's doing exactly, but it, I'm just like, you know, punch me in. That's, you know, is that my name? Hit enter. Uh, but but I'd, I'd take my bag, you know, you put your bag on like this thing, and it just kind of goes along this, this conveyor belt, and off it goes, and it disappears. And, um, I mean, that's faith. That's your favorite suitcase, right? And it's got all your stuff in it, and there it goes. It just kind of disappears. And then, and then you climb onto this, uh, this plane, and, of course, food shows up, and someone made the food. Someone put the food on there. I hope they're doing their job right. I hope it's made well. I hope it's not dog food, just made to look like people food, you know? And, and you eat it, right, most of the time, and... Um, and so there's all this faith stuff that goes on. The biggest thing, of course, though, is the pilot, right? Um, most of the time, has anyone ever met a pilot of a flight they've been on? Okay, a handful, right? Very few get to meet the person that was driving your plane. But we hope there was a person up there, right? We hope that he's not having a bad week. I mean, there's all sorts of things that go on. It's a huge faith-filled experience to, to do this. Now... To, to just turn your brain here a little bit, um, I hope none of you have, have experienced this. It's very rare, of course, and we see it in the news. Um, but 
But there are times when, when a plane is taken over by force or by threat of force. And all of a sudden, that plane and its intended destination and all the intended purposes that were designed for it are suddenly transformed, and now it's being controlled by someone else or a group of other people. We call that a hijacking, right? A hijacked plane must be one of the most frightening things to be on because all of a sudden, even though you never saw the pilot or met the pilot, now you know that something sinister is going on. What if, just expand your brain here for a second, what if your body, what if your body was hijacked, okay? So you, you would say you're in control of your body here this morning, right? Most of you walked in here of your own free will, and you chose to sit where you're sitting, and you, you can choose to lift your hand or put it down right now. But what if your body was hijacked? What if something else came and, and, and began to control your body and, and move your body in places you, you, you didn't want it to go and, and, and do things and say things that were, in essence, against your, your will? The world has a word for this, and it's a common word. It's the word addiction. Let me get an, an older kid to give me a, a brief definition of what an addiction is. What, what does it mean if you're addicted to something? Talk to me. I'm looking for a middle schooler or so or a high schooler. Yeah, Zach. What? You can't stop, or it's hard to stop. Yeah, okay. So uh, other, other terminology is it, it's got its claws in you. Some, something or someone or, or some event ha- has, has a hold of you in a way, right? Um, and, and addiction is a, is a massive uh, industry in our country. It's a massive topic of, uh, of discussion. Uh, it's in the news all over the place and all the time. 2 Peter 2.19 says this. Uh, Peter's writing, and he's talking actually about some false teachers that are going to rise up among. And, and these, are, these are people even posed to be um, on God's side, and they're, and they're teaching some things. And he says this. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. You know what the Bible word for addiction is? It's slavery. I mean, think about it. It's the same thing. It's exactly what Zach just told us the answer was. But slavery sounds really ugly. Every American, we we know our history of our own country, and we say that's ugly, and that's horrible, and that's wrong. And addiction, in some ways, puts kind of a nicer red bow on on a really sinister problem. Slavery. In Genesis 1, there's the account of God that goes through and he is creating things. Remember this? He's just creating, creating. And he's six times in a row, it says this. And then God said that it was good. He looks at what he's creating and says it was good. And six times you have this repetition. And then the seventh time, the seventh day, what you hear him say is this. And he looked on all that he had made and it was, what's the qualifier to the good? Anyone know that? Very good. God creates, and God doesn't make junk, is how the saying goes. He knows what he's doing. He's a perfect creator. He's a sovereign creator. And he looks at all these things that he's made, and he declares them good. And you know what happens? Sin enters the picture, and sin hijacks that which is good for evil. Hijacks that which is good and uses it for evil. 
I'm going to show you in a second a list of addictions, or really slave masters, if you would use biblical language. Remember 2 Peter 2.19 that's up there. Whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. I want you to look at this list for a moment, and I want you to see what, it, what was it that God created, and how was it good in the first place, and then how is it that sin hijacked it such that now we have a slave master next to it. Now, these are mostly biblical terms up here. I've, I've translated a few of them. But here they are. The Bible talks about someone who is, who is in the sin of adultery. What their enslavement is, is to sex. Sluggards are slaves of comfort or maybe convenience. Those who are greedy or maybe stingy, it's money. That's what they're addicted to. Those who are proud are addicted to the self. Those who are drunkards are addicted to alcohol. Gluttons are addicted to food. Bullies are addicted to control. And workaholics are addicted to performance. Now, you won't find workaholic in the Bible. But what we can do is we can find some things that, 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 that basically say that. Now, there's a common underlying um, theme to all of these. Every single one of these has one thing in common. And here it is. Ready? They're all false idols. Because at the root of every single sin is idolatry. It's that you're worshiping something that's a false god. And you know what false gods do? They make huge promises that they can't possibly deliver on. But people are buying. And we believe these promises. We, we hear a false god proclaim something. Do this and you'll be comforted. And we say, okay, I, I agree to that. And if you think about this as a religion, people make all kinds of sacrifice for these different sins. They give all kinds of worth and value. They give it preeminence or first place in their thought, in their time, in their money, in the way they structure their week. Isn't it fascinating that you can go through a whole day, you can drive, you can do uh, your work, you could stop and pump gas, you could swing by and pick up some food somewhere. All the while, your mind could be chewing on something else, huh? It could be worshiping a false idol, or it could also be worshiping the true God. But we could be doing all these things and kind of doing them in tandem. From last week, we talked about Romans chapter 1. And just write down Romans chapter 1. It's a great um, summary kind of, of chapter for what we're talking about. And this is all by the way of introduction. But in Romans 1, it says this. We looked at one of the saddest verses, that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. People exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And it goes on to say this. They worshipped created things rather than the Creator. On our list, do you see it? God created things that were good. And sin has entered the world, hijacked it, and it's become something that actually enslaves people. Even in a free country like America. We might be as enslaved as any nation in the history of the world because of our affluence and because of the things that we have accessible to us. But much like the, the Israelites who say, we've never been enslaved to anyone. They were real proud in their freedom. We're proud of our freedom, but many, many, many people are absolutely and utterly enslaved. Do you notice this? They worship created things rather than the creator. This whole thing is a worship issue. You actually worship your way into sin. You worship your way into 
addiction or slavery, as the Bible calls it. And so therefore, you actually need to worship your way out of sin. Instead of worshiping created things, begin to worship the Creator. Instead of worshiping a false god and beginning to take that which is supposed to be reserved for God alone and placing it on a false god, you need to worship your way out of that sin and place it on the one who can deliver on the promises. Uh, Many people think that Christianity is a religion of no. Don't do that. You can't do that. Stop doing that. Now that's true. There's a part of that that's absolutely true. How many parents have used the word no this week? Raise your hand. Let me see it. There you go. Is it because they love you or because they hate you? Kids are like, eh, mixed bag. I don't know. They love you, right? I mean, the most loving thing you can do is to, is to shout with urgency, no, to a little four-year-old reaching up to a hot pot of boiling water. So is Christianity a religion of no? Absolutely it is. Yes, that's absolutely correct. However, it's also the religion. It's also um, a a giant yes. And if you miss the giant yes, then, then you've missed all that Jesus came to really talk about and speak about. God wants your body. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way, but it's absolutely and utterly true. If you're going through formative years and you're wondering about your body, I and mean, the body is a source of massive topic with people for all of time, right? Know that God wants your body, and we're going to ex- explore that a little bit. I don't have this on the screen, but 1 Corinthians 6.19 says this, Do you not know that your body is, a temp- is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, Therefore, honor God with your body. And 1 Corinthians 6.13, 2 Corinthians 4.10, Philippians 1.20. I could go on. There's so many passages that say that same thing. God has designed you for amazing good and for being a partner with him in this universe. Last week, we talked about changing the way you think. And this week, it's about changing the way you live. And as you change the way you think, you will change the way that you live. If you begin to think about that list of slave masters, if you look at those things as that which God created, which is good, not meant to master over you, not meant to be your all-consuming thought process through the week, not meant to be your source of comfort when you get off of work, all of a sudden, if you think and you put that in its proper place, you don't worship it, you allow it to be subservient to everything else besides God, then it begins to change the way you interact with that product or with that thought or with that action or with that person. (coughs) Now, um, I've made your notes really fun and simple. I don't know if they're fun, but they're simple. Um, I'm going to just, I'm going to flash up four words, four big ideas that Paul uh, addresses here to the Ephesians and with each one, there's something we're to put off. That's the no of Christianity. But there's also something we're to put on. That's the yes of Christianity. And then there's the why. There's the because underneath it. And by the way, parents, this is a great way to correct. This is a great way to train and to discipline your children toward godliness. You ever find yourself, parents, in a mode of no? 
There's just times where you just get, you get into a rut. You know, there's times when my kids, if they ask me it's anything at a certain amount of time and a certain kind of pressure, it's, no. The answer is just no. I don't even know what it is yet, but it's probably just no. And I go, I don't want to be the no parent. I, I mean, I, I in general want to fly, I, I want to parent with yes. Like, I want to say yes as much as I can. But right now, I mean, you could ask me, Dad, can I wash your car? No! I, no, you can't wash my car. No. Oh, wait, wait. Yes, actually. Hang on. So, so there's times you, you just kind of get in that rut uh, of doing that. But isn't this a great model for how we're to raise up our kids? Don't do this. Instead of doing this, here's what I want you to do. I want you to do this. I want you to show you the positive. Here's what I want you doing. And then here's the reason for it. Now, kids, here's what you don't get to do this week. You don't get to say to mom and dad, oh, unless you give me a reason, I don't have to do it. Pastor Dave said, eh, not going to fly. That's not what I'm saying. But in general, doesn't it help kids when you understand the reasoning of why you're doing something? It really does. It's really helpful. It doesn't mean that you get it all the time. And we certainly don't get it all the time from God. There are whole things that I do in obedience to God's word. I don't know the why right now. I don't understand the why. But by faith, I know I have a good, loving father. And so I'm walking in obedience or trying to walk in obedience in those things. Um, If you were an amusement amusement park designer in the mid-70s, I don't know if you're here with us this morning. That would be fascinating. But um, someone in the mid-70s thought it would be really cool. They were probably looking at like a tin can. And they thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could have people that would stick to the side of like a tin can and just kind of suspend there. Wouldn't that be awesome? And so they thought, we should design an amusement park ride that would accomplish this. And so they did. Uh, Down at Magic Mountain, I was down there as a kid. And if you're a child of the 70s, maybe you remember this ride. But this is a ride where you basically went into this giant tin can. That's all it was. It had a bottom. It had kind of a a cylinder sides. And it had a, a ceiling. And what you did is you stood there like this. And they said, just stand flat, flat-footed and, and against the wall. And um, anyone know this ride? Okay, so what happens? It starts, it starts to spin, right? And you're like, this is kind of a lame ride. You know, at least a carousel, I get a horse or something. And then it goes really fast. And it goes faster and faster and faster. And pretty soon, you're going, yeah, this is cool. And then the floor just goes, and it drops out from underneath you. And what the, the, the coolest thing is, all of a sudden, you're suspended like Spider-Man on, on the wall, you know? And you're like, yeah! And you're, you know, your cheeks are like, Egh. And you're just pressed against this thing. It's, the, it's really a, a great idea. I mean, this passed for fun in the 70s. They've, they've upped the ante a little bit. But, but this ride was so cool. And, and here was the shocking thing. The very first time I ever went on this ride, I'm sitting, I'm, I'm standing right next to my older brother. Which is always a good thing. It's good to have an older bro with you on a ride. You're a little bit scared. You know, I don't want to announce that to everyone, but I was. So he's there with me. And so the floor starts to drop. And everyone's there. And we're like, yeah. And I realize everyone's looking at me. Like the whole circle is looking at me. And I was like, man, you know, is my fly down? And I don't know what's happening. I'm not sure why they're looking at me. Well, they weren't looking at me. They were looking next to me. Because, you see, my brother was staying with the floor. He was going down. Now, my brother has roughly the same build. He's not like 400 pounds, and you're wondering why this doesn't work or something. But in the 70s, another fascinating thing is parents dressed us all in like polyester things, I think. And he had some sort of a poly blend that that didn't work. And so he was sliding down with it. And he went, and he was like 10 feet below me, or however low it was. 
And I'm, I'm here and my tears are streaming sideways. I'm going to lose my brother. I'm losing my brother on the round ride. You know, the, the, the magic can. And it was a, it was a different experience for him because he went down with it and came back up with it. Woo! He's a, you know, it was a, kind of a different experience. Now, as we, as we talk about these things, here's, here's, here's the picture I want. Okay, I want you to lock this, this image in, in your mind. For the ride to work, my brother needed to lose the polyester. Which, that's not a bad, that's not a bad way to go in general. Just, we, we lost the polyester a lot anyways after the 70s. But he needed to take off the, 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 the jacket he was wearing, right? And then he would get to, to suspend. He'd get to defy gravity by, by, by doing that. With each of these four things we're going to talk about, it's exactly that same metaphor. Paul is saying, put away from you, take off, get rid of, not polyester, but these different things, okay? So as we, as, we, as we talk about putting off something, that's the image I want you to think of. If you don't take this off, you, you just continue to sink. You don't defy gravity. You don't have the power to soar. You don't have the power to rise above it. I mean, it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? You, you must take this off for this to work. All right, let's get on to these. By the way, the other powerful picture here <coughs> is that Paul doesn't just say, God wants all of you. God wants your body to glorify him. I think it's easy for us to say amen to that. Yes, he does. But then we start naming specific issues, specific temptations, and that's where it gets really challenging, isn't it? We sing sometimes, I want to offer God all of me. And it's easy to say that in general, harder to do in specifics. So naming specifically what we're talking about is huge here. All right, here's the first one. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm not even there yet. Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to look at verse 25. Here we go. It says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Here it is. First one is deception. Deception is quite simply the urge to lie. What are we to put off? Falsehood. What are we to put on? Truth. How often? Always. Do you need the power of Jesus in your life to be 100% truthful 100% of the time? Absolutely. This might be one of the most universal of all temptations. The temptation to lie. And it's so pervasive. We'll see. It actually kind of trickles into the other three things we're going to look at. Why, is, why are we to do this? The reason given is this. We're members of one another. To, to lie is to hurt your own body. It's attacking your own flesh. It's taking a hammer and intentionally bashing your other hand. We're members of one body. So that's the reason given. We looked last week at James a little bit. How the tongue is the tiniest little part of the body, but it's oh so important in how we live. It's oh so important in how we direct the course of our life. It's a huge thing with worship. And I'm not just talking about worship by singing worship songs on a Sunday morning. We're to give our tongue to God. How do you give your tongue to God? That's kind of a weird thing to say, huh? Please don't put it in the offering plate. That's not what we're talking about. So what does it mean? I want to give my tongue to God. I want to give all of me to God. Well, how about your tongue? Here it is, ready? By training. Every single word you ever say starts in your mind. 
And if you're a Christian, if you've been washed in the blood of Jesus, then we looked at this last week. You have an enlightened mind. It's no longer darkened. It's enlightened. God's given you the ability to see things as they really are. 2 Corinthians 10.5 tells us to take every thought captive to obey Christ. So as you begin to train your mind to say, I want to have every thought even be captive to the obedience of Christ. It stands to reason that our tongue then will begin to follow. Because every word starts as a thought. Now I can already read some of your minds. You're saying this. Yeah, but uh, I don't really think before I speak. Okay, don't raise your hand, but some of you have this issue, right? In fact, all of us have this issue at some point. Are we off the hook because we don't think before we speak? Proverbs 29.20 says this, There is more hope for a fool than for someone who speaks without thinking. There's more hope for an utter fool than to someone who speaks without thinking. Ouch. Let's see if this stands up before the, the, the judge. Truth-telling, by the way, doesn't just glorify God. That's the positive aspect. But it also spares you judgment. Proverbs 6 says this, <clears throat> that a worthless person goes about with crooked speech. A lying tongue is a hated abomination to the Lord. Do you think a little idle word spoken in secret that no one knows is quite a, a lie is not a big deal? It's a big deal. Proverbs 19.5 says this, A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. He who breathes out lies will not escape. Escape what? Tell me. Judgment. And the proper punishment for it. Now, sometimes that happens right on the spot, sometime within a relatively close span of, of when you said the lie. But ultimately, we also know we're, we're going to be giving an account for every idle word that we have. I learned this lesson. I learned the truth of Proverbs 19 really powerfully um, at the start of my senior year in high school. God grabbed a hold of my heart as a junior in high school, um, and my life began to change dramatically in so many different ways. And my eyes were opened to God's truth. And we were heading off to Hume Lake Christian Camp, and there was a rule in our youth group that you couldn't bring Walkmans. By the way, those were early iPods. Uh, You couldn't bring your Walkman to camp. And the whole idea behind it was this. Unplug for one whole week. Don't bring your music. Don't let other things come. Just, un- just, just kind of take a fast from all of that. Take a break from all of that. As a youth pastor, I instilled that same rule. I love that rule. As a senior in high school, you know what I thought about that rule? I thought it was kind of dumb. I really did. I love music. Music's a huge part of my life. And it's a six-hour bus ride, and that's if we don't break down. Breakdowns add, you know, it's a 14-hour ride at that point. So, so I purpose in my heart, I decide ahead of time, look, I've got the smallest Walkman around, and, um, and I can fit this in my bag, and I'm going to bring my Walkman. I want to bring my music. So I packed it. On the way out the door, I didn't expect this, but my dad uh, was probably talking to me about a bunch of things, but he said one thing that I remember crystal clear. You know what he did? He looked me right in the eyes, and he said, you didn't bring your Walkman, did you? And without hesitation, I said, no, Dad, I didn't. Climbed on a bus, 
sat through a week of Hume Lake. And let me tell you, day after day after day, six days of Hume Lake, having God's word faithfully, passionately, creatively taught to me. Do you know how miserable I was about that lie? How many words was that? No, Dad, I didn't. Four words. Four words undid me that year. First thing I did when I got home from Hume, we got home, we walked into the house, I know the exact spot I was standing. I said, Dad, I need to talk to you. And he said, what is it, son? Senior in high school, I'm bawling. I'm crying. He said, he's like, you know, what is it, you know? I said, Dad, I lied to you. And I'm, I'm so sorry. That was so wrong with me. He who utters lies will not escape. By the way, here's how my dad handled it. He looked at me. He said, son, thank you for telling me the truth. And there was no further punishment because of this. He said, it looks like God's given you the, the punishment that, that, that fit that. And he had. That was wisdom. That was wise parenting, wasn't it? There's nothing my dad could have done prior to that. I, I promise you, I've lied to my dad a ton of times before that. But do you see that when the Holy Spirit entered my life as a junior in high school, and then I'm sitting under God's word and God's teaching, there's no way I could let a single lie like that, bold-faced lie looking at my dad in the face, rest in my life. It's a cancer. And I did not escape. I thought I was, but I wasn't. Lying is the native language of Satan. It masks reality. It hijacks that which is good. It twists it. And it's often oh so subtle. Remember the snake in the garden of Eden. Did God really say? And it's just a little subtle twist. When you hear, did God really say? Here's what you say. Yes! That's a settled issue. He did say that. Now get away from me. That's how you answer that. You don't engage in dialogue about that. It's a slippery slope. You take a couple steps down that, and you could be at the bottom of a hill with boulders on your head before you know it. It's a subtle, slippery slope. Exchanging uh, Exchanging the truth of God for a lie is costly, isn't it? I mean, it really can ruin your whole world. But catch this. Exchanging the lie for the truth can also be costly. It was costly to me because the whole way home, six hours worth, which I didn't listen to my Walkman, I was churning inside. How am I going to face my dad? What am I going to say? How's he going to respond? Will he trust me again? It's costly to tell the truth. Acts 19.18, listen to this. Also, many of those who were now... By the way, this is after a great story. Junior high boys would love this story where the sons of Siva are involved. And just check it out. Acts 19, it's a great story. But Acts 19, 18, right after that, says this. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That in ancient times translated to, catch this, several million dollars. 
A town comes together. God sweeps through. And all of a sudden they said, these books are false. They're lie. We're going to put them off. They put them off so bad they didn't sell them and say, well, we can still get some money. That's perpetuating a lie. We're going to burn them. And the monetary cost didn't seem like that much because they'd found the one true treasure. What does always telling the truth cost you? What does always telling the truth cost you? And here's the follow-up question. Are you paying the price? Are you paying the price of that or are you paying the price of living in deception? The passage goes on. Let's look at verse 26. The first one is deception. The second one is be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The second one is anger. The urge to lose it. I want you all to do something for, uh, for a moment, and I want you to do this. I want you to take in a breath, and I want you to hold it as long as you can. Everyone ready? Okay, now I'm going to let go. You keep holding it. While you're, while you're holding that in, um, I want you to think about something. Every single person in this room feels angry. Anger is an emotion designed by God. Now, before you pass out, if you begin to feel you need to, go ahead and let it out. That's okay. Uh, there's not a huge monetary prize. In fact, there's no monetary prize for the winner. Um, but some of you might still be holding your breath. Some of you, I've already heard it. We've already let it out. Okay? Here's why I'm having you do this right now. Anger is just like that deep breath that you just held. It can only be held so long. Some people can hold their breath really, really long periods of time. But guess what? When it finally comes out, how does it sound? You know, they're like, ah. It's just a, it's a big violent explosion, right? Some of you can hold your breath for like three seconds. You're pretty wimpy. I mean, that's, that's not very long. And you're just like, you know, it's just kind of quiet and whatever else. Anger is exactly like that. Anger can only be held for so long. At some point, it's getting out. So the question becomes then this. How do we let our anger out? How do we deal with it in the right way? Feeling angry is not a sin issue. It's what you do with anger that always is the sin issue. So what are we to put off? Sinful, lingering anger. What are we to put on? Righteous anger. Why? We don't want to give any opportunity for the devil. Think about this. Anger has this ability um, to take control of, of us very, very quickly. Unlike a lot of other sins, it's, it's one of those ones that just shoves you out of the driver's seat very quickly and starts taking over. And anger's got some friends that, that tend to kind of trickle in with, with him. Friends like bitterness and revenge and slander. Slander's where you start speaking out of your anger all the things that are going on in your heart. And there's a long, ugly list of cousins and friends of anger that are there. And we're instructed in the scriptures to not let the sun go down on our anger. What does that mean? What does that mean to not let the sun go down on your anger? I'll tell you what it means in our household. We have taken as a family and said, we are going to take this at scripture's word, and we're not going to ever go to bed angry. We're not going to ever go to bed angry. Every couple we've ever pre-married counseled, we've said, take this verse... And no matter how hard it is, no matter if you pull some all-nighters, no matter if you pull several all-nighters, 
take this verse and obey it. The, the picture of giving the devil an opportunity here is this. The word used for opportunity, some of your translations might read, don't give a place to the devil. Don't make room for the devil. Think about in your home. What if parents are in this room and kids are in this room and you decide to build a guest room right here for Satan so that overnight he can do his work? Ludicrous. No one would do that. You'd say, why would I invite an enemy in? Why would I invite the worst person in my home? I guard against that. And yet overnight anger has this ability, does it not? We know, we've we've been there, to just subconsciously build force. You go to bed mulling on it, thinking about it. What are you dreaming about? What do you wake up chewing on and thinking about and stewing over? That same issue. Now put it in the marriage bed. I don't care how big or small your bed is, deciding that we're just going to roll over and go to bed. Whatever. That's giving place for the devil in your bed. I mean, can you think of a more devastating result? So, the challenge is this. Put off sinful, lingering Anger. Some of you are like me, and you want to resolve things very, very quickly. Some of you have personalities, makeups, bents, and family instruction, DNA imprinted on you that it lingers and that you want to deal with it way down the future somewhere. Some of you are just slower paced. A lot of times God marries. I, I talked with a person in a relationship recently who one's fast paced at resolution, the other one's slow-paced at resolution. Those are all part of the joys of marriage and the joys of figuring out how to get along. But figure it out. Jesus got angry. What did Jesus get angry at? Let me rattle a couple off really quick. Irreverence. John chapter 2. This is where he's turning tables over. And he's so upset because people were taking that which was set apart for holy... And they were using it not only for the common, but they were using it for material gain. Making money off of God, God really frowns on that. That's a bad scene. That's irreverent. Jesus also got angry at hypocrisy. Mark chapter 3, Jesus was condemned for healing on the Sabbath by the religious leaders, by the Pharisees. You could add to that, but they were unloving, and he was angry at that. He also got angry at unbelief. In, Mark, in Matthew 11, he's talking to unresponsive cities where many miracles were done. And finally, injustice. Jesus got angry at injustice. So, you should, and you have freedom, to get angry at irreverence, hypocrisy, uh, uncompassionate things and people unrepentance, and injustice. And here's the kicker. Start with yourself. Start with seeing those things in yourself and getting angry at those things in yourself. You know what proper anger does? You know what righteous anger does? It begins revivals. It actually goes in and physically sets the captives free. Right now, one of the hot um, 
Christian cultural things to be involved in, and it couldn't be better, is to save those, to go in and physically rescue those who are ensnared and trapped, enslaved in the sex trade industry all around the world. There are all kinds of organizations that are figuring out how to go in and just say, enough is enough. We can't sit by and watch this happen. Many in this room have said, enough is enough. I'm not going to let kids starve while I sit here and figure out, why am I throwing away so much food? I have so much food I can't eat it. It's going rotten in my refrigerator. Enough is enough with that. Anger is something that actually can move the causes of God forward. It gets you out of your cowardice self. And it says, I've got to do something. I don't know what it is. I'm not expertly trained. I feel scared as can be. But I cannot do nothing. And so anger can actually move things forward. But be careful with it. Much of the anger that we see is unrighteous. Being new in Christ means you're no longer the, the temper guy or the temper gal, the one who's characterized by you being quick-tempered. In fact, we're actually to put on long-suffering, understanding, wisdom. Those are the things that should characterize us. Here's the temper test. Is it sinful temp, uh, anger or is it righteous anger? Here it is, ready? If it's selfish anger then it's sinful anger. If this anger is resulting from any of these, pride, convenience, money, reputation, payback, or simply being annoyed, that's selfish anger, and it's sinful, and it does not accomplish, this, it does not accomplish the purposes of God. Period. If this anger is righteous anger, it won't fall into any of those categories. How do you deal with it? James 1.19 gives a great starting point. This should be a family memory verse uh, for every family, at least at some point. James 1.19 says this, Everyone, just mom and dad, just those with a quick temper? No, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. More listening, less talking leads to less anger. Third one, stealing. Here it is. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Put off stealing, pretty straightforward. Put on honest work, labor, work, productivity. Why? For ministry, for the purpose of being able to share with others who don't have as much as you. Now, stealing movies, heist movies, are hugely popular right now. Um, reaching back a little bit, there's the Italian job, the Oceans franchise, which just kept making movies because they were so popular. And uh, Gone in 60 Seconds, real throwback is Robin Hood and all the versions there. There's something about the heist that kind of engages people. It engages their senses. It engages all of them. And there's this huge kind of adrenaline rush that goes with it, and it appeals to people. It appeals to people's senses, and I think that's why the movies do so well. And here we'll be instructed, not just don't, stop stealing, but do. Isn't it interesting that he says, do something with your hands? Why your hands? That's what you steal with, right? You steal with your hands, so take your hands... Think about them properly. Say your hand's being hijacked. 
You're being the ultimate stingy person. No one likes to be called stingy, but you're being the ultimate stingy person when you steal. And you're being the ultimate generous person when you of your own free will give something away completely. I got to be a fun middleman this week. Someone in our church wanted to bless someone else in our church with something. They came to me and said, can I do this anonymously through you? I said, man, I have to drive to a lot of people's homes sometimes and deliver different kinds of bad news. I would love to deliver this message. I'd love to be this go-between. What a rush it is to just give something away. It's a totally different kind of rush, isn't it? And it's not just stop stealing so you can work so that you can provide for yourself. It takes it further by giving it away. Now, we all would agree that stealing is selfish and sinful, and honest work is good. But isn't it true that honest work can also be selfish and sinful? Here's my question for you on this one. How much of my work is a means to a selfish end? How much of my work is a means to a selfish end? It begins to beg other questions, doesn't it? Why do I work so hard? I mean, really, I have, I have enough, probably. Am I longing for something else? Is there something underneath me being a workaholic? How much is enough? Jesus told a story of the rich fool. You know what he did? He accumulated so much stuff that he said, my barns are busting overflow. I need to build bigger ones. So he goes and he builds bigger barns, rents another storage unit for all his stuff, and he's a fool because his soul was required of him that night. He had built up and amassed all kinds of stuff And didn't focus on what really mattered. He went on to say, Jesus talked about the idea that you can't serve God and money. Do you see how it's a false idol? It's actually a God that you serve is money. Very quick snapshot of wealth, by the way, according to the Bible. We're stewards only. God owns owns it all. So we're just really stewards. That's one of the new things about being new in Christ. Is you think brand new about money and your stuff. Mine has, has... Far little implication. It becomes a a nonsense word almost. Mine. We're stewards. We're going to give an account as stewards. How did we spend or invest God's resources? Not Not just the money we're blessed with, but our health. What do we do with our energy? What do we do with our time? What do we do with our tongue? We live in a place that this is true. Wealth... Uh, extends with it or brings with it a unique temptation to trust in yourself. Praying, give us this day our daily bread in a country that has Costco's with large amounts of bread. It just, there's something in there that's really, really challenging. Most of you aren't wondering where you're going to get your food after church today. But how many are worshiping today, wondering how they're going to pay for things tomorrow. A vast majority of our brothers and sisters in Christ, they're not tempted to trust in self as much. Another thing about wealth is that giving to the poor is giving to God, and that wealth is an indication of worship. There's a certain barometer that's involved with your wealth. 
Last one that he brings up is bad language. I'm not just talking about swearing here, but all kinds of foul, disgusting things that can come out the mouth. Let no, verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So we're to put off corrupting talk. That does include swearing, but also malicious gossip, slander. What are we to put on? We're to put on speech that builds up. We're to put on words that are fitful, that, that, that fit the occasion. Ever say the, wrong, the, the right thing at the wrong time? You got 50%, but that's still an F. You know, I mean, it's, I've done that so many times where I thought, boy, that was the right thing. That was truthful, but that wasn't very gracious. That wasn't really the right, that wasn't helpful in that moment. Do your words build up or do they tear down? Why? Because people are in need of grace. Anyone here ever been stabbed in the back? Yeah. Probably not literally, huh? Hopefully not. But being stabbed in the back is a common occurrence. What we'd say is that someone used words or someone used something against us and we thought they were our friend and they stabbed us in the back. Words can tear down much worse than buildings, cars, and other things. You get in a car wreck, your your car can be rebuilt as good as new. No one would ever know there's an accident. It would function perhaps even better. But some adults in here in this room, they're so far removed from elementary school, but you ask them, and in a flash, they can bring up the nicknames they were called on the playground. They can remember in a moment things that were said and done to them 10, 20, 30 years ago. Proverbs 12, 18 says this, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. I don't know if that's where stabbed in the back came from, But those who have rash words are like sword thrusts. I'm going to change the names, but a couple of middle schoolers came to my mind, and it brought tears to my mind this week as I was studying for this passage because I thought of the hurt and pain that goes on right over the fence from my office. Middle schoolers, high schoolers, those on campuses, college and elementary. Do you see this kind of thing? Do you see falsehood going on on your campus? Is it hard to see anger going on in your campus? Is it difficult to identify corrupting speech coming out of the mouths of people, of your classmates? It's not, is it? It's, it's very easy. I can think of all the campuses that are represented. It's on every campus. One girl, I'll call her name Sarah. She was what you would call a cutter. She took a blade or a sharp object and she cut herself to get attention. And guess what? It worked. She got attention from it. And when he got down to the bottom line of it, I still have a poem of hers that she wrote. I asked if I could keep it and help other kids in her situation. But do you know why she cut herself? Because of words of other kids that landed, I mean, like blows on her. I promise you she would have preferred to get beat up every day, physically beat up, if they would have just remained silent. And it breaks my heart to think about Sarah. I don't know where she is today. But we worked with her and prayed with her. And really, we got, we got to see God bring a lot of healing to that. I'll give another example. And that's a, a kid named Brody. His name isn't really Brody, but that sounds like a cool name to throw out. 
I visited Brody in the hospital super late at night. Uh, someone had tried to injure him really bad. In fact, someone had tried to kill him, and it was himself. And to walk in and to sit with Brody, and he didn't really want to look at me in the face because he knew me pretty well, and I knew him pretty well. And to sit there and to look at him and talk with him and in the months and weeks and even beyond that, after that, you know what it was that drove him to a place where he wanted to injure himself that bad? The tongue of people. God creates our mouths so that we can bless people with it. We can give huge gifts. We can bless our creator with it. And at the same time, we can turn around and take it and stab people in the back. That, Proverbs goes on to, that, that, that proverb goes on to say this. Not only can it be like sword thrusts, it contrasts it this way. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. Sarah and Brody needed the tongues of the wise to come and offer healing bombs to their wounds. Little words have huge power, not only for evil, but also for good. I don't know if you've ever thought of your mouth as doing a deed, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this was a pastor in Nazi Germany. And he was over in America, and he could have stayed over in America, but he made the decision to go back with his people and suffer with his people under communist, I mean, under, under Nazi rule. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was in uh, Flossenburg prison during World War II, and he'd been condemned to die. And he would walk the narrow corridors, visiting the cells, speaking to prisoners and encouraging them, laughing and joking with them, reminiscing with them, and praying with them. His words were the primary means of his ministry. His words were deeds. He wrote this, God has put his word into our mouths in order that it may be communicated to others. The Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs that friend again and again and again. My challenge to you is this. Those who are in the word, those who, who are being trained in the word, really have a word to offer when someone comes to you in need. I have a certain luxury. I don't have $100 bills sitting in my pocket all the time. So when someone comes and asks me for money, people come to our church all the time and ask for money kinds of things. You know what I can say? I can say, I, I am literally fresh out. I, I don't have any. I don't carry large sums of money, and my budget doesn't allow me to, to, to do that. I'm, I'm to care for my family, and I can't do that. But you know what I can and often do? is to sit down and to look a person in the eye who's re- requesting this of me, and I, I say, you know what I've got? I've got about a half an hour right now. I don't tell them this, but I was going to go grab a quick bite to eat, but I'd gladly take that time and be fed on doing the ministry of, of God's Word. And so I can just sit down, and some of you have been to San Francisco with me, some of you have done this on your own, but you know how it is. One of the biggest gifts we give are not clean socks to a homeless person in San Francisco. It's freezing cold, and we're sitting on the cement with them, talking with them, laying hands on them, praying with them, and administering the word of God to them. That's the huge gift. Imagine not being looked in the eye, not being asked your name, and not being able to engage that way. That's the gift. We all have words that can be gifts, 
We have words that can be weapons. Or here's maybe the most sinister of all, and I fall into this, so I'm putting myself in here too. But when someone comes to you in, in need of God's grace, do you, ever trap, do you ever fall into the trap of just speaking small talk? The reason you do small talk is because of this. I don't know what to say. I don't know if they'll really like what I have to say. They're sinning, and, and, and they shouldn't be. And that's what's hurting them. I'm not a trained expert, and so we just talk about nonsense that doesn't matter. Those who are in the Word have a word to offer to those who are hurting. They might still go away crying and hurting, and you may not have alleviated all of their hurts and needs, but what a healing (laughs) blessing our words can do, that it will give grace to the hearer. I want to invite the band up right now. We're going to sing a song called Break My Heart. And what this song talks about is this. It's a prayer. And I want you to pray it this way. God, would you break my heart with the things that break yours? Remember last week? We're no longer insensitive and unfeeling and uncaring where God created us to be feeling and caring and sensitive. As we do that, I want to finish out this passage where it says this. Verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. He lumps one final put off here. Put all these things away from you. We're going to sing this song as kind of a prayer to God. And as we do, we're going to take the offering. And I want the song and the offering time to be our response in worship to what we've heard in the Word this morning. Let's pray. God, thank You for emotions. Thank You for creating us feeling Beings, We cry out to you and confess to you that where before we had no choice, we were enslaved and entrapped, many of us, by our emotions. We felt there was no hope, no way out. But God, much like the spinny ride at Magic Mountain, your power, your resurrection power at work in us, whom we were sealed For the day of redemption, the Holy Spirit gives us power to overcome that which we could do naturally. Lord, I pray that as we give right now, we would give cheerfully and joyfully and generously, recognizing that we're stewards of all the good things that you've given to us. As we sing, God, help us to use our tongues to cry out to you meaningful things that you long to hear from us. In Jesus' name, amen. Left, left to ourselves, every one of us in this room would essentially hijack our own body to do things, say things, go places, and live the way we do not want to live. But Jesus offers us hope out of that. That's the powerful picture. Every day, I want you to think of these things. The Bible tells us to consider ourselves dead to sin. It means to think on the fact that that's already true because of the blood-bought cost 
that Jesus paid for your body. That means you now have a choice. You get to wake up in newness of life and the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is available to every single one of us as we enter our week tomorrow. Isn't that good news? So consider yourselves dead to sin. You're dead to the old self. You have a choice. Put off. Stop doing things with your body that side with sin. Put a stake in the ground and say, Jesus, no more. I'm not going to grieve the Holy Spirit anymore with this. Every click on the computer, every step that I take, every glance of my eye and every word that comes out of my tongue, my mouth, I want it to be glorifying with you. I don't want to be on the side of sin. Thirdly is to put on, start doing that which you were designed to do. You live a life of no, 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 stop, stop, stop. I just can't do that. Without ever engaging in what you're supposed to be doing, you will fail every time. It's like a giant black hole. You will always go fall back into that. Why? Because you're thinking about that. I can't do that. I can't engage with that. I can't be near that. I can't touch that. What are you thinking about? You're thinking about the sin. Only as you begin to engage and think elsewhere and outside yourself and all the ministry that's around you that God designed you and wants you to do will you be free from that. And finally to realize there's a big picture. God's big plan is in effect. There's meaning to your obedience. You won't always know the reasons for it. But here we were given four reasons, four things to put off, four things to put on. And the reason for it It's not meaningless repetition or obedience. It's life or death. The passage ends this way. Instead of those things that I just closed with earlier, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. We're going to close with a song of encouragement. And then the worship service, catch this, is going to continue with a meal together. Some of you can't stay for the meal. We won't be offended. But please stay if you can. You know where you get to put this into practice? Around a table. Being kind to one another. Putting their thoughts and needs ahead of yours. Not answering what people say with your opinion, but really listening to them. Taking time, carving time out to get to know the body of Christ better right here in this room. So let's, um, let's stand up right now and sing this together, and then we'll dismiss to the meal.